Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. We only have three chapters left in the Gospel of Luke, chapters 22, 23, and 24, but an awful lot happens. Everything from the plot to kill Jesus, to his arrest, his trials, his condemnation, his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So a lot happens. Chapter 22 opens with Judas initiating the plan to kill Jesus. We know that the religious authorities have been plotting this for some time, but Judas is the one who goes to them with an idea about how this might be done. Your translation may say that Satan entered Judas in in verse 3. This phrase is used elsewhere as an indication of possession, so it indicates to us here how strongly under the influence of evil, of the forces opposed to God that Judas is to make this happen. The festival of unleavened bread and Passover were once separate events. We've seen that as we read Exodus 12, 23, and 34. But by the time we reach here in the first century AD, they are functioning as a single event, like they just run together and they're all referred to as the Passover. In verse 11, it refers to the guest room or upper room, depending upon your translation. And this is the same word that is used in the birth narrative when it says there's no room for Mary and Joseph, the pregnant Mary, in the inn where Jesus was born. So I told the story of how there were probably visiting guests in town for the census, and there was no more room in the guest room to have some privacy. They have to go down below into the cave where the animals were kept to get some privacy. The disciples are told that they'll find the right person because it'll be a man carrying a jar of water. That would make him easy to spot because men usually carried leather bottles of water and not jars. Again, this may have been a prearrangement that Jesus has made in order to observe this final Passover with his disciples before his death. We get a really good institution of the Lord's Supper or the Sacrament of Holy Communion, also sometimes called Eucharist. Eucharist literally means celebration. And so we celebrate what Christ has done with us by remembering and reenacting and receiving again the grace of God in this Lord's Supper. In the modern Passover Seder, or order of that meal, there are four cups of wine, and we believe there were four cups in the first century. Now, what those four cups stood for exactly then may have changed a little bit over time, and it depends on which biblical scholar you're reading as to what they stood for. For some of them, the four cups stand for the four sayings of God. The first one, I will bring you out. The second one, I will deliver you. The third one, I will redeem you. And the fourth one, I will take you to myself. Other scholars believe the first one was the Kaddush or the blessing at the beginning of the meal. The second one was um, drank at the conclusion of the main part of the Haggadah or the the reading, the, the ceremony of the Passover meal, and it's called the cup of redemption. The third cup was drank at the end of the grace, 
the blessing that is said at the end of meals, and the fourth one at the conclusion of the hymn that they sing at the end of the Passover meal. Cups one and three, so a cup of blessing and a cup said drank after the grace at the end of the meal were common to every Sabbath meal and holiday meal. Cups two and four are the ones that are added. So there are people who believe the first cup that we see him take here is the cup of blessing at the beginning of the meal, and that it is the later cup. Scholars are a, a debate over whether it's cup two or three. I lean toward believing it's cup two, the cup of redemption, the one that is added to this meal that he takes and consecrates and calls um, the cup of salvation. The bread would have been matzah bread, um, unleavened bread. In Luke's version, the disciples miss the signs of the betrayer because they get into a dispute over greatness. Self-centeredness can really cause us to fail to see things that are crucial. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and be willing to let God's Spirit lead us to see other things. We also see that equality in Christ influences our leadership style. We are called to be servant leaders, out for the good of all, not for the good of ourselves. Satan then has demanded to sift Peter. This is referring to a sieve where the heads of grain were taken apart. So in other words, Satan has asked to literally rip Peter apart. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith will remain strong. What if Jesus praying for us doesn't mean that we're not still going to go through difficult times But he's saying, what's coming is going to be difficult, and I've prayed for you that it won't cause you to to abandon all hope, to lose all of your faith and trust in God. Um, Peter, however, is overconfident. I'll never deny you. And it becomes very easy for us to become overconfident in our faith. Um, Earlier, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he told them to take nothing with them. Now they are told that they will have to provide for themselves, take some supplies. And they take him so literally when he says, sell and buy a sword. They go, oh, here are swords. And he realizes they're still not understanding. And he just stops the conversation. I wonder how much more he would have said to them, how much more preparation if they had showed any glimmer of understanding. We come to Jesus praying. We call it the Gethsemane prayer time. Luke never names the garden. He just says it's on the Mount of Olives. I want you to notice that it says sweat runs down his face like great drops of blood. It doesn't say it has to literally be blood, but he is praying with deep anguish, with emotional exhaustion. He is praying fervently, And you can see it by the sweat, a lot of sweat on his face, even in the cool night air. Jesus here sets an example for us of both prayer, going to God with the things that are difficult and spending time with him, and an attitude about how we respond to them. Then he is betrayed, um, and the one who cuts off the ear is Peter, according to John in John chapter 18, verse 10. After Peter denies Jesus, he has instant remorse over those denials. I think he comes to himself, the cock crowing, 
wakes him up from this stupor. And it reminds me very much of the story of the prodigal son who comes to himself, wakes up, and remembers who he is when he's in the pig swill. In chapter 22, verse 63, there are guards. These would have been temple guards. Think of them more like church security than Roman soldiers. They insult him, but we're going to see in down in verse 69 that God exalts him. Chapter 22, verses 66, he has a trial before a council. This would have been the Sanhedrin, the religious um, council, the religious ruling body, and it happens just before or just at dawn on the next morning. The Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet under cover of night. Jesus quotes to them some verses from Psalm 110. His answer is like, yes, you, you understand then. It is possible that in this exchange, what they find blasphemous is that he pronounces the name of God, what they call the Tetragrammaton, that proper name of God that you will see in many translations as an all-capital rendering of the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and it's Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, um, which was the proper name for God that the Jewish people did not pronounce. We translate it as I am, I am that I am. Now we move into chapter 23. Pilate is the Roman procurator. Um, they bring him to the Antonia Fortress, and Pilate finds him to be no threat. So he sends him to Herod. Herod is a governor of the Galilean province under Pilate. So he's sending him, this is this dude is your problem. You figure it out. This exchange happens at the Hasmonean Palace, and the people want a sign. Luke has already warned us about wanting signs back in chapter 4, twice there, and twice in chapter 11. They dress him in bright colors. Purple was a royal color, and white was for king designates. So they're dressing him up like someone who represents the king or who is the king, um, Toga Candida, the white toga that they put on him as a part of making fun of him. He is then sentenced to death. Barabbas is an actual insurrectionist, an actual terrorist, whereas Jesus is being accused of being one by his fellow Jews. Pilate doesn't want a riot. He doesn't believe this is true about Jesus, but he's fearful of mob violence because he would be responsible and held accountable by Rome if riots break out. Jesus' crucifixion becomes a spectacle. It gathers a large crowd to come out and witness. This is affirmed again in verse 48. The women here are professional mourners who are out promoting their business. Look how Wonderfully, I can wail at the death of your loved one. Retain our services now. Originally, both of the criminals start out mocking Jesus, but one becomes able to see. Paradise is the abode of the righteous dead. Um, the centurion's words about Jesus become the final word, the final judgment on all of these events. And Jesus dies with a great cry of faith, quoting Psalm 31, 5. And we see that at this moment, there are some who go away regretting the role they have played in what has just happened. 
Joseph of Arimathea comes and claims the body of Jesus and places him in his new and never used before tomb. The body of a political rebel would ordinarily not have been released. It would have remained on the cross until there was nothing left to keep it there, or it would have been thrown into the trash dump into Gehenna. The fact that Pilate releases the body says to us that he never really believed the charges against Jesus. Then we move into the final chapter, chapter 24. Despite all that Jesus has taught them, the disciples are not waiting and expecting Jesus to be resurrected. Um, They're going to take care of the body, not to expect him not to be there. Luke makes no mention of there being guards at the tomb. And in this chapter, we see that they find two men, it says in verse 4, at the empty tomb. They are clearly angels because every other time they're referred to, they're called angels. But we're left to figure out um, exactly what they look like. I do want to make the point that this makes angels, at least these angels, men, grown males, not chubby little babies and not female. We rarely see a depiction of angels these days as mighty men. And I think that's a shame. The disciples completely dismiss the report of the women disciples. Um, They call it idle talk. And the phraseology used here is the same way they would have referred to someone who was very, very sick with a fever or at the end of their life talking deliriously. So it was just ridiculous stuff not to be heeded, but it is true. We have the event of the walk to Emmaus, where some of the disciples are heading back home. This is the same day as the resurrection, and the two disciples heading home are not part of the original 11. Emmaus, that city, is seven miles round trip from Jerusalem. They go back to tell the others, and then Jesus appears to them, and he says to them, peace, or shalom. In other words, all is as it should be. What Jesus has done has put things right. It's not all going to look right or feel right, but peace. All is as it should be. Luke has previously not mentioned nails with the crucifixion. Nails weren't always used. Sometimes people were just tied to the cross and left there. But this does seem to indicate that nails were in fact used. So this makes him align with the other Gospels on that because he asked them to check out his hands and his feet. They reference here all three parts of Scripture when they're talking about how the how Jesus, excuse me, how Jesus explained all of Scripture to them, the law the prophets, and the Psalms. That would have been all the pieces of Old Testament Scripture or that they consider Scripture at that point. The book closes with an instruction for the disciples to wait for the coming of what has been promised, which we know in the follow-up, the sequel to this, is going to be the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Remember that the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is one half of this story. It is the prequel to Acts, and Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. 
The book closes with the ascension of Jesus, and this is unique again to the Gospel of Luke. The disciples go back, return home with great joy and celebration, believing what they have seen, and they will now go to the upper room to begin spending time and waiting for this promised um, counselor to come to them. I want you to notice that in Luke's gospel, Jesus arrives with blessings of peace and joy, and he departs the very same way in blessings of peace and joy on those who are looking, waiting, and receive him. These are my thoughts on the gospel of Luke.